Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The notes, show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh24. We have five hosts this week, thanks to a special guest who I hope will help us understand a topic causing a lot of confusion lately, including in my head. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of ThisIsTrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, and the thought-provoking meme site, Randy'sRandom.com. I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo, chief question answerer in AskLeo.com. I'm Kevin Savitz, the chief Kevin at FreePrintable.net, where I have printable documents and templates. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, and I make mobile games at clevermedia.com, mostly for iPhone and iPad. And I also host uh, macmost.com, which is a site of tutorials for Apple users. This is Ken Gagney. I'm the host of the podcast Polygamer and Transporter Lock, as well as editor-in-chief of Juiced.gs, the last remaining print publication dedicated to the Apple II computer. Woo. Nice. So we'll, put links, we'll put links to all your podcasts in the show notes. So yeah, Ken, yeah. you haven't been on this podcast much because uh, your your enterprise your your Star Trek show happens on Monday night. Are they on hiatus for the end of the season, or or what? Why are you here on a Monday? So when the Tech Enthusiast Hour originally started recording, it was on Sunday night, the same time as Star Trek Discovery, and right. so I had to watch it as soon as it debuted so that we could record Transporter Lock as soon as possible. But the first season of Discovery ended in February, and it is not to resume presumably until September. So here I am. Okay, so no, 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 no spoilers. Was it, was it worth it? Are you glad you spent the money for CBS All Access or whatever? And, and are, you, are you happy with the show? Oh, absolutely. I thought it was fantastic. It's very different from any Star Trek that's come before, and that's not a bad thing. It, it is expanding the definition of what it means to be Star Trek and expanding the universe in which these things occur. I am concerned about some continuity issues, but I'm willing to see how those play out in future seasons. All right. Cool. Well, that's cool. So let's get into the warm-up and what we did this week. Um, I've been changing out WordPress themes, which, you know, sounds like it ought to be real easy, but, uh, and it is for for my small sites. They you know, just do a little bit of setting up stuff and setting colors and fonts and all that, and I'm done. Uh, but some sites are a little bit more complex, and it breaks things, or especially... Uh, customized things that, that I have on some of my sites. And so I got to go kind of carefully and uh, only one big site left to go. This is true itself. I did uh, Randy's random over the weekend and uh, it was a fairly smooth process with only a couple of gotchas here and there. And, and I'm real happy with the, uh, the new theme. So remind me, Randy, why are you uh, changing this out? I mean, I know, I know from experience, it's, as you say, it's a bit of work. There's a, hopefully there's a payoff. Well, the, the main reason is that the theme I've been using for virtually all of my sites called Canvas, which is a, uh, a Woo theme that was bought by uh, Automatic, the, the publishers of WordPress. Uh, Automatic decided to end of life the theme. They're not going to continue to develop it. They say it's not going to really be compatible with the new Gutenberg editor. So I thought, uh-oh, I better start working on that now before they end of life it so that uh, I won't have problems in the future. Cool. Kevin, what have you been up to? 
Yeah, I've been working hard on a, uh, for my uh, podcast, Antic, the Atari 8-Bit Podcast. I'm working on a, putting together a package of a series of six interviews with uh, people who were kids in the 80s and were part of Atari's Youth Advisory Board, which was this board of 20 kids that uh, between the ages, I think, of 13 and 17 that Atari put together to... Uh, depending on who you ask, either to get feedback and 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 customer thoughts of, from what children wanted from computers, or it was a big marketing ploy uh, to kind of parade these kids around and, and get their company written about in newspapers. Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Um, so I've interviewed six people and I'm putting together a package of uh, episodes talking uh, with all these folks who were on the, the board back back in the day. And uh, I just had head deep in that and uh, having a having a great time putting that together. Cool. Well, I'm just back from a, a trip overseas. I took a, my wife and I took a quick trip over to the Netherlands to visit my cousin and do a little bit of uh, genealogy uh, research, uh, all, you know, boots on the ground kind of stuff. It's interesting. I, I love the Netherlands. It's a beautiful country. I, it's one of those places that I wanted to get my wife to go see at one point anyway. I mean, my parents came from Holland, but as it turns out, um, her grandparents on one side also came from Holland, as well as if you go back further, um, she's uh, she's got relatives back there as well. Um, what actually got me, every time I fly, uh, you know, especially these long international flights, um, I am just amazed at the um, in-flight connectivity, the fact that, um, in fact, it'll get mentioned in, in my newsletter tomorrow, the fact that I'm sitting there at 38,000 feet chatting with one person on one um, uh, continent uh, in one window, chatting with another person on another continent in the other window, all the same while I'm actually answering Ask Leo questions in real time. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing the things you can do today. And it's one of those things where, you know, to, to not sound like too much of a, an old fart, but kids these days just don't understand how well they've got it. Well, they take it for granted. They do take it for granted because it's been there the entire time for them. They haven't seen it yeah. you know, evolve. The other thing that just, again, amazes me, and I mentioned this last year when I went, um, I rented a car and I ended up declining uh, their offer of an in-car nav system just because I've got Google. And I wasn't sure last time, but it paid off. Google knows where you're at. It knows, I mean, you're just on a completely different continent from where you are every day. It just works. The only caveat, of course, is that you have to have a data plan that lets you do that because this is the kind of stuff you need mobile data for while you're driving around the countryside. But it just amazes me that, um, you know, this, that this technology not only just works, but works so well in so many different places. Um, it's, um, I had a, I had a, a lot of fun with it. And once again, I, I, it renewed my, my, uh, excitement, I guess, uh, if you will, with, with the state of technology today. Now, Randy, your wife is actually also tramp traveling in Europe as we speak as well. And she's had similar experiences if I understand it right. Yeah. She's not using nav, but, um, she is using her phone for everything, you know, she, for her Kindle books so she can read at night and things like that. But also, as her camera, that's the only, she's walking the Camino, so she doesn't want to take very much weight. So uh, her phone is doing, you know, multiple duties. 
And we're using Dropbox, so anytime she gets into Wi-Fi territory, she'll connect up and Dropbox will pop all her pictures up to me. And uh, so I've got her laptop and my computer and I'm copying all these pictures down so that it frees up space on her phone. But then I can uh, share on, uh, she has a special Facebook page just for her friends that are following her on this adventure, walking 500 miles. And I can post her pictures almost in real time, you know, basically every day so that people can see what she's doing. I just think it's absolutely amazing that A, I can do this, and B, it doesn't cost us a cent. It's all just, that's right. You're, she's it's the internet, open, baby. Open Wi-Fi hotspots along the way. About how many pictures would you say she's, you've transferred this way so far, do you know? Multiple gigabytes. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, she's doing, um, she's probably doing 60 pictures a day. Wow. And this is like 30 days worth. And so she's in the last 100 miles now. So she's, you know, 80% through. And, uh, you know, sometimes she had to kick it a little bit. So I got some duplicates and she's also got some videos and stuff. But it, it's a substantial amount of data that's coming across. We wouldn't want to do that on a data plan, but. Uh, right, right. Well, it, I definitely, when I was over there, I took a lot of pictures with my uh, my SLR. And of course, I copied those over to my laptop. But one of the things I did do was to make sure to, um, I throw them in OneDrive, but it's the same effect, right? They end up getting copied automatically uh, up to the cloud. And in fact, you know, the pictures hit the computers here at home, um, you know, within minutes of my having uploaded them. And you're right. In cases like that, I'm definitely sidestepping the mobile plan. I'm definitely using either the hotel Wi-Fi or my cousin's Wi-Fi or whatever. But uh, it is pretty darned amazing that that kind of stuff all uh, all comes together. Now, the one thing I did notice is that you're, you know, you're basically dealing with the time zone. You're having to, uh, to yeah. deal with the fact that she's, what, eight or nine hours um, ahead. So um, when she's posting things in the evening at the end of the day, you're getting them probably midday your time. Well, I, I contrast this with your trip to uh, Australia and New Zealand and how you did your backups of your pictures. And I think that's interesting. Just how many years ago was that? That was in, uh, well, I was in uh, 2010. Um, so only eight years ago. And here's how you did it. Go ahead. Well, what I did, again, the, the, the ruling, the rule of thumb that I had was I could, what's the one thing that I could not replace? And that would be my photographs. So I put in a lot of effort into understanding exactly how I was going to back them up along the way. Unfortunately, I couldn't count on Wi-Fi or internet. And what internet I, there was going to be was not going to be particularly fast. So um, I bought myself 10 compact flash memory cards, and uh, which is what my camera at the time used. And then yeah, I was there for three weeks. So about every two to three days, I'd drop one in the mail. I'd throw things on it and mail it to myself so that by the time I got home, um, the pictures would be waiting for me if I lost them off of my laptop and or my camera. And of course, I had my laptop and an external hard drive and that kind of stuff with me, which and it is all I ended up using. But the, uh, the catch was that uh, should I lose them, should I lose everything, um, I'd still have those pictures waiting for me when I got home. And this is all, you know, because you can't, couldn't at the time rely on the internet being as ubiquitous as it is today. Anyway, um, so I, after coming home uh, last week, uh, number one priority, sleep. sleep. Yeah, like I said, there's a time zone involved and jet lag is, the, the struggle is real, my friends. Um, 
And then today, uh, my wife and I, we went out with a friend and saw uh, Avengers Infinity War, which um, was a blast. It was um, a very, I'll just say, interesting ending without throwing any spoilers out there. Um, the one minor spoiler I will throw out there is that my favorite character in the movie was Peter Dinklage playing, of all things, a giant dwarf. Um, Peter Dinklage plays a, a dwarf in uh, Game of Thrones, and he'll notice, you'll recognize him from other roles as well. But it was a, a very cool, not really a cameo, it was a real honest-to-goodness role in the movie. But it just, it played both to and against type at the same time in a very interesting way that I thought was kind of fun. So anyway, that's been, you know, my week and my recovery. Gary, how about you? Oh, typical week for me, working on apps, things like that, working on uh, MacMo stuff. Um, I did finish the app I've been working on for the last few weeks, and I plan to launch it on Thursday. It'll be called Windward, as in like Windward, but with an O instead of an A in the, in the last part. Um, and it's a word game, trading game, adventure game, card game you know, mashup. So... It's uh, kind of unusual. Um, I don't think there's anything like it. I've never seen a game like this, combining these elements. Uh, if you've ever been sailing, you know that it's kind of interesting moving with the wind because you don't always get to go exactly the direction you want. You have to kind of go with the wind or tack or use various other strategies to get where you want. And I noticed while working on a word game that uh, if you you start with the first letter of a word and you go through a, uh, I'm actually using a hexagonal board, but even with a grid, sometimes you end up, you know, uh, kind of going in an unusual path to get to the last letter, like in a word search, but you don't have to go in a straight line. And I kind of tied that together and it struck me that it felt like kind of like sailing where if you wanted to get from point A to point B, sometimes you had lots of little points in between. Um, that weren't in a direct line. So I built a whole game around that where you're sailing a ship around an ocean with islands and trying to trade goods and fight pirates and do all these things, but using uh, using words instead of wind to travel. So anyway. Sounds like fun. That will launch on uh, Thursday. Um, And yeah, I'd like to mix that. You know, sometimes I make games like uh, that are standard, like the last one was cribbage, you know, cribbage. I didn't invent cribbage. Cribbage is around for a long time. Um, And there are many cribbage games in the app store and I kind of put my own cribbage game together. And sometimes I make games where I make up the game elements and create something new and unique. I like to, to mix it up and, and do both kinds of game development. So, so that was my week and that'll uh, be launched on, Thursday, I'll probably announce it in my Mac Most newsletter, and I have a game newsletter that's at clevermedia.com too that I'll, I'll announce that at. How about you, Ken? How did you about see Infinity War? <laughs> I did. I did see yeah. Infinity War and a lot of other movies, including Ready Player One. Did anybody here see that one? Yeah, I oh, saw that. boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm filled with opinions about that one. Oh, yes. It, it does admittedly have some problematic elements, such as uh, epitomizing gatekeeping, taking our favorite pop culture and commodifying it and taking it out of context. But I can't help it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I went in just looking to have a good time and not think very hard. And to just be a fanboy who was delighted by the mere appearance of things he was familiar with. Well, did and you read? Did you read the book, Ken? 
Yes, I read it seven years ago. Oh, okay. So I, I, I love the book. It's one of my all-time favorite books. And I was disappointed in the movie. Okay. Well, I, <laughs> there are enough details about the book that I have forgotten since reading it that I was able to be impressed by the movie. Uh, so if you just take it on its own and not necessarily as an adaptation, I think it yeah. would probably fare better. Yes. Uh, my bigger news is, this isn't necessarily new, it's four months old, but I haven't been on the show in five months. While most of my esteemed colleagues here are self-employed, I recently took a job with an employer. I now work full-time for Automatic, the developers of WordPress, which Randy was talking about earlier. So I am a technical account engineer on the VIP launch squad, which means when some of our uh, higher tier customers want to launch new websites, they work with a project manager such as myself. Nice. Well, like yeah. what, can, you, can you say what kind of sites you work with or uh, is that not, no. not, a, not a good idea? No, I mean, some of our clients are pretty well known. And in fact, one of the requirements to be our client is that you have to put our footer on your website that says powered by wordpress.com VIP. So that might include, for example, Hulu or some of the informational aspects of Facebook and their blogs or Nate Silver's 538, which is owned by ESPN. And I've so, seen it on some newspaper sites. We are very popular in the publishing industry. That is very true. WordPress is a good fit for those needs. Yeah. So I've, I've been cool using stuff. WordPress for 11 years. In fact, I think I mentioned maybe last time I was on the show, Randy, that when I was looking to launch my first CMS-powered website, I went to the three websites I admired the most in their design, and I asked each of them, which CMS do you use? Two of them said WordPress, and you said movable type. <laughs> I'm like, okay, going with WordPress. Yeah, and, well, I've uh, switched. Yes, and I'm, I'm delighted to hear it. And I, uh, I'm sorry to hear that my employer is shutting down Canvas, but if you need any advice or help, you know, I'm happy to lend a hand. Although I, I should clarify that. I should clarify that on this podcast, I am not speaking for my employer. My opinions are my own. Alrighty then. Okay. <laughs> um, well, with that, we will turn to our, uh, our usual first item of our recurring feature, uh, our unintentionally recurring feature. Can I say it? This is my turn. Go for it. Go for it. It's the only thing I have to do this episode. Ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Here we go. Breach of the week. There you go. It is Breach of the Week. This time we actually have three of them that I wanted to, to bring to light. Breaches one is one, of the Weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of them is the, probably the one that most people are, have most likely to have heard of or potentially even be affected by, depending on your eating habits, is that uh, Chili's has apparently suffered from some malware. What I found interesting about this one is that it is malware in the stores. So... Uh, when they talk about it, um, to quote, we learned that some of our guests' payment card information was compromised at certain restaurants as the result of a data incident. Um, <laughs> okay, data incident is just, you know, PC version of we were hacked. Um, as it turns out, they, there was probably malware involved. They're not yet saying which restaurants um, or uh, which uh, you know, guests are, are impacted by this. Um, but they are very clear to say that it is quote unquote just uh, payment card information. So it's going to be your credit card number, your name, that kind of stuff, but nothing more 
private than that. Well, it uh, makes me wonder if it's the uh, Chili's has at least a lot of Chili's have these tabletop yeah. terminals that are based on a on a tablet, and they have a credit card slot and all that. So I wonder if that's how they got into it. It would be interesting. I know that um, Olive Garden also has the same technology. It's it's um, probably different. It's not a tablet, but it is a little standing thing uh, where you can also play some games, pay a buck, and your kids can play some games while you're having the meal and so forth. Um, and yeah, when you think about it, I mean, that would be an awesome place to say, I don't know, put a skimmer um, or something like that. So it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to a more full disclosure after their investigation is complete on exactly uh, what it is that happened. And uh, I think what. it's more likely after they close the barn door. After, true, but I mean, <laughs> but still, you know, you, you want it, you want to learn from those experiences and, and make sure, sure. that um, it's one of the reasons we talk about it here is because we want everybody to understand that these things are still happening. And to the extent that anybody listening is in a position to do so, to learn from it, to change what they're doing, uh, potentially put in some more, um, you know, more security or more, more secure techniques. The second one is a wonderful example. Um, it's uh the phone company is called EE or Everything Everywhere. Apparently, I'd never heard of it before, but apparently it's the largest mobile network in the UK. And what a, um, a security researcher, basically it sounded like more of a, uh, I'll just call him a white hat hacker, but someone who's hacking around looking for these things, discovered that they had some of their equipment left with its default username and password. So as you know, when you purchase a like a consumer grade router um, or, or or access point or those kinds of things, they typically come with a pre-configured username and password. Now they've started getting a little bit smarter in recent years, where you actually have a unique password per device. But that's harder for them to actually implement and sell. It raises the cost of the device somewhat. A lot of devices have the same username and password by default when you you know when you get, take it out of the box. So what's happened here is that that's what happened to this company. This large, large mobile network took some equipment out of the box, they put it into service, and they didn't bother to change the username or password. So everything really was everywhere. Everything really was everywhere, yes. Um, the, as the, the article at um, uh, Sophos's Naked Security says, unfortunately, the name has proved prescient. It reportedly did, in fact, leave everything for anyone anywhere to find by non-securing a critical code repository so that anyone could log in with the default username and password. Um, and apparently, some of this included, like, um, employee data, um, AWS, Amazon um, storage certificates or credentials to be able to get at um, Amazon uh, cloud storage, which I believe we talked about not last week, but the, the week before, uh, how often so many of these uh, more recent data exposures turn out to be um, unprotected um, S3 storage buckets. Um, so this, now while you, know, you and I and the people that are hopefully, the person that's hopefully listening to this podcast, um, is not in charge of a large mobile network. But on the other hand, we all have these devices, and it's well known that many of the routers and devices that we end up using in our home have these default passwords, these default usernames. And it just shows how important it is uh, to make sure to change those 
to something unique to you, to something that is more secure, to something that will prevent, in our case, our routers and equipment either from being breached so that exposing whatever we have on our networks or, as is also often the case, being used for things like distributed denial of service attacks or other things. And finally, because we have to talk about Facebook whenever we talk about um, privacy and data exposure, um, uh, to quote, let's see, this is the Daily Beast, intimate data from as many as 3 million users of a popular Facebook personality quiz could have been leaked, according to a new scientist investigation. I emphasize personality quiz because what have we been talking about over and over again for the past few months? Don't play those stupid, silly online Facebook games, the quizzes. You're exposing so much of yourself to not just the people who are seeing your feed, but potentially to everybody that's collecting the data. Now, to refresh, the University of Cambridge folks, they got into a deal with Facebook to get this information, quote unquote, legitimately, where the bad stuff happened is that they then turned around and in violation of their contract with Facebook, shared that data with others. So the data then made its way essentially into the wild, into the hands of people that they were, you know, was never supposed to be um, uh, in the hands of. So it's another case of our Facebook data, another example of our Facebook data making it out into the wild. Um, and in this case, you know, what can we learn from it? Well, don't trust don't trust Facebook. Don't play silly games um, unless they're from uh, Gary, of course. But, uh, you know, don't don't ex you know don't play the personality quizzes and stuff on uh, on Facebook because you're you're sharing with more people than you really think you are. At, at what point do we just do we smart tech people throw up our hands and say, you know what, Facebook is fun, but it's too much of a liability. We're out. Because this, this stuff keeps happening, and if it's not from stupid little apps, it's from Cambridge Analytica, and it's just from Facebook itself, it, it's clearly filled with holes, and it's not going to get better. I, you know, I struggle with that myself because there are, to put it bluntly, I've said this before, there are benefits to using Facebook. I connect with more people on Facebook than I would uh, would have otherwise. I've reconnected with people. I've engaged with people on an ongoing basis that I wouldn't have. From a from a very pragmatic standpoint, as business people, people who are trying to do things um, on the internet and engage with people in that way, um, you know, in my case, my people are there. Uh, you know, you sort of go where your people are. I try and help them to navigate the waters properly, but um, you know, leaving Facebook. <laughs> In my case, at any rate, it isn't necessarily um, an option, given that I have so many, uh, so many friends, literally friends on Facebook, and so many of my, my readers and fans are out there. How about some of the other guys? I'm sure you've all been thinking about it. Pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, to me, it's a communication tool. And any other bells and whistles thrown on top of it, like little, you know, these little quizzes and all that, I just ignore it's a communication tool. I have people I'm connected to on Facebook. I use it to communicate with them, and that's it. I don't spend any other time there. Yeah, for example, I, you know, while I was in Holland, one of the things that was working for me is that, yeah, I let my friends know where I was by checking in to various random locations um, you know, along the way. And you know, that was a great way to stay in contact with people, um, to, uh, 
um, without uh, going through a lot, a lot of other things. And you trusted that your friends wouldn't uh, break into your house because they knew you were gone. Uh, that is correct. They are my friends. <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's breaching this week. Hey, you know what? I just thought of the perfect segue. Since we were in Europe, Ken, don't you have something that's Europe related to talk about? I sure do. I have something to, I have a reason to explain why all of you are getting updated privacy notices from all the services you use, Facebook, Twitter, Apple. They are trying to be compliant by May 25th, which is when the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, goes into effect in the European Union. How many people here have heard of the GDPR? Oh, yeah. Oh, yep. yeah. <laughs> I think every publisher at least has it, not every person in the world. Sure, sure. So now, Anybody I, who understands the GDPR. <laughs> uh, I hope Ken does at least a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm going to do my best. As I said, I'm speaking only for myself. And also, I am not a lawyer or any sort of security expert, but I will do my best. The GDPR is the manifestation of a cultural difference between how the United States and how the European Union view data. In the United States, when a company collects data about a customer, that data belongs to the company. They made the effort to collect it. They are recording it and archiving it. It belongs to them. In the European Union, when a company collects data, that data belongs to the customer it is about. And the GDPR is a new regulation that gives those consumers rights to access their own data. And the main new tools that have to be made available as a result of the GDPR is the right to find out what the company knows about you. Think of it like a Corporate Freedom of Information Act about yourself. Uh, so you can basically download a copy of your data and even edit it or correct it. And also, you can request that the vendor delete their data about you, as long as it is not essential to their business. For example, uh, if you have a contract with that company and they need to know certain things about you. In my case, I sell a physical magazine. Customers come to my website and they subscribe to it. They can't reasonably ask me to delete their address from my database and still expect me to send them the magazine because I need to know where they live. Now, this GDPR applies only to citizens of the European Union, but many companies like Apple, Twitter, and Facebook, even though they may be headquartered in the United States, still operate within the EU and solicit business from citizens of the EU, so they need to be compliant. And so a lot of companies are rolling out these new tools, not just for EU citizens, but just for everybody. Kind of like when California has their own emissions rules, Companies don't make cars just for California. So Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, are rolling out new tools and new privacy policies for all their customers, not just those in the EU. It gets a little trickier. For uh, ex example, if you are trying to identify who your customers are by geolocation, let's say that you don't want to be GDPR compliant. Even if you're United States-based, you might be susceptible via international law to being responsible for data of customers of yours who are in the EU. So you just decide it's not worth the hassle. You're just going to block all traffic to your website from anywhere in the European Union. That's not really going to work for a couple of reasons. One, if a European Union citizen is 
traveling abroad and let's say they're in the United States, GDPR still applies to them, even though they're not currently in the EU. So your geo block isn't going to work on them. And also if somebody is in the EU and is using a VPN, it might look like their data is coming from China. So you can't reasonably identify who they are and block them. And so therefore you still need to be GDPR compliant. So there are, like I said, new tools being rolled out, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. If you are a publisher, as Randy said, then a lot of CMSs are implementing new features. WordPress version 4.9.6, and I believe Jetpack 6.1 will have a whole lot of new features that enable the, uh, the sort of requirements that you need to be GDPR compliant. WooCommerce is going to have some new features. Uh, I don't know how much more you need to do. And to be honest, if you are a small provider or publisher or supplier, like uh, you may be if you're listening to the show, the odds of this ever coming back to bite you are pretty minimal. But, you know, there are uh, reasons to go through with this. For example, I think that the rules GDPR is putting in place, while certainly onerous for publishers, are fantastic. I think it's great that in light of things like Cambridge Analytica, we're now being given more rights to our own data. I think that's wonderful. Uh, but it is a pain in the butt for those of us who don't understand GDPR. And for the web developers that we usually hire to make our websites, you know, we can't just say, oh yeah, can you check this box to make sure that our site is GDPR compliant? Because these people, they're WordPress developers, they're programmers, or they might be designers and that doesn't make them necessarily legal or security experts. So it's a whole nother realm of skill sets that people need to have when thinking about how to make a website. That's my you know, broad overview of GDPR. I'm sure there are questions that I can try. Yeah, to- I'll start. So you know, with the caveat that you're not a lawyer, how does a foreign law apply to somebody that's not in that country or set of countries that are not in the EU. So how does this really affect like somebody with a blog in the United States? I mean, can they, can they enforce the law against them is the bottom line. Right. So I'm, so that's a bigger question than just GDPR. That is how does international law work and how do sanctions and the like work that I'm not really sure about. I'm not sure how a country, uh, a company in the United States who's violating European law gets brought to European justice. That I'm not sure about. Uh, I can reasonably guess that if you're a small enough company, you're probably going to fly under the radar. Kind of like Section 508 here in the United States, which requires that websites be accessible, meaning that regardless of whatever uh, abilities you may have as far as hearing or seeing, you are still able to access a website. Companies like Target and MIT have been sued under Section 508 because their websites were not accessible. Now, odds are some of us on this podcast have not gone through a comprehensive review of their own websites to make sure that we are Section 508 compliant. And there are a lot of ethical and practical reasons and commercial reasons to be compliant. But as far as the legal reasons go, we probably haven't done our due diligence. Are we going to be brought to justice for that? Probably not because they have bigger fish to fry. Uh, So do we need to be GDPR compliant? Again, I think it's in our best interest. I think it's in our consumer's best interest. Is the European Union going to target us? Probably not. And if they do, how does that work? 
I don't know. I Good answer. One of the uh, <laughs> one of the pieces of data that I just got from what you said, though, is that the tools we are using, for example, WordPress, WooCommerce, um, if they're implementing support to whatever level um, to at least help, if not actually meet some of these GDPR requirements, that's actually um, a bit of a load off, even regardless of whether or not we're pragmatically at risk. Um, you know, it's it. One of the things that scared me that I ran across was the um, uh, the, the cost of failure, if you will, um, the fine for even a single instance um, of noncompliance was incredible. Um, it was like five or six digits, um, which just blew me away. Makes sense if you're a large company because you need those kind of numbers to, uh, um, you know, for it to be meaningful. But um, it can wipe out a small site in an instant. Uh, and that's not something that I ever want to be in a position to uh, uh, to have to do. And on the other hand, it's work to have to do these things for a government that I'm actually not beholding to, if that makes any sense, which makes it not only work, but frustrating work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can totally see that. You know, if you're going to prioritize laws, you would want to do the ones that you in for the country that you reside in but uh wordpress is you know one of the tools that we have mentioned here and i just added to the show notes a link to what they are doing to take care of this and there are also plugins that you can run on wordpress for example there's one called eu cookie law right european union cookie law and so this, go ahead my well my sense is that this is going to become another cookie fiasco you can't go to a website these days without having to accept cookies it's 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 annoying, it's frustrating, it's particularly frustrating because it has nothing to do with, with my use of their site, their site's expectations of me. It's all about placating a government that actually isn't even involved in the transaction I'm having with a particular website. Um, it's just that website basically covering their fanny um, to um, uh, you know, avoid whatever threat there may be from doing that. So we're all seeing these Yes, I accept cookies. Yes, I, I know you use cookies. Yes, of course you're going to use cookies. Pretty much can't do the web without cookies, but we still have to individually and repeatedly acknowledge it every time. Is this going to be just more of that at a grander scale? There certainly is going to be more acknowledgement involved. The plugin I just mentioned does exactly what you just said, which is let the visitor to your website know that you use cookies. But it's more than just acknowledgement and consent. It's also, again, the tools for accessing your data, editing it, downloading it, deleting it, and taking it to another provider, which are not necessarily things that have previously been provided. But the other, I mean, it's, it's more than just providing the tools. Because I can tell you right now, it also means providing customer support. Somebody, a large number of people visiting, heck, our sites, any of the folks here on the podcast today, we're going to have people that are going to want to do something, going to want to change something, you're going to want to examine something. I don't know. They're going to have questions. We are now on the hook for providing not just the interface to do so, but the, cu the customer support for making that work on an individual basis. So it's an actual, it's not even a fixed cost for us. It's an ongoing cost of additional um, 
uh, you know, additional support. But but are we on the hook? I mean, I guess that's that's the sixty four thousand dollar question that, that Ken didn't know the answer to, and that's that's fine. But it's there are how many countries are there in the world? Two hundred or whatever. We as if you are a company in the United States primarily serving up web pages to United States people, but you really can't be sure. You cannot possibly be expected to follow the laws, the international laws of 200 companies. What if uh, countries, what if there was a a country that says all for accessibility, all website backgrounds must be white. You know, it just, it would, it would be ridiculous. And, and uh, I, I just can't see how I, as a U.S. company can be forced to, follow these laws for a, couple, a country that I have no involvement with, really. As you I'm say, with that you. That's the $64,000 question. What is the cost of noncompliance? Well, and, and for me, I, you know, I'm looking for practical stuff because you know, I did find some information a while back, and I, I, don't, I have no idea. I should have bookmarked it because most <laughs> articles about the GDPR are really vague about oh this is about data and privacy and access and I was and I want specifics and I did read somewhere that you know something like okay uh, somebody visits your website and you collect data on them like say their email address or a name or, or something like that you need to be able to tell them here's what I know about you then you need to be able to let them to edit that and you need to be able to you know delete it if they request um, and so like the practical issues of like, well, is it okay, for instance, if I just say, hey, I have a support email address. Anybody emails me and says, what do you know about me? And can you delete it? Can I just do it that way? And not, you know, take, take care of it on a case-by-case basis, which may be like one request in the next 10 years. Or do I need to go and spend days or weeks, uh, you know, taking my small website and building a whole interface for that? Um, and if I don't, you know, what sort of trouble am I going to get into? I, I just, I, you know, I want the practical details and I wish, and I guess the lawmakers in Europe are big picture and I want like, tell me specifically what you want me to do and what, you know, whether I really need to do it. Well, I think it's pretty clear that the lawmakers in Europe would love for you to follow their laws. But what, what are the laws? I mean, what do I need to do to my, you say you have a WordPress site. Like the hundreds of thousands or millions of people do, and you have blog posts, you post them, uh, people can get a, an email newsletter, and they can sign up for it. They get an account ID, and they give their email address, and maybe they say, you know, gender and like location and a couple other things, and then you also collect like what date they signed up for your site, that kind of deal. And that's like their user account, like their IP what, address. Yeah, uh, what would be I mean, is there a requirement then to have like an interface that when they log in, they can see like, here's all your data and here are editing tools for it and here is a big delete button or is it enough to say, if you want to know about your data or you want to delete it, email me and I'll do it immediately. Well, I think in many cases, for example, if I want to go on to Facebook and download a complete archive of my account, I can do that. Same thing with Twitter, no human intervention required. And that's what the platforms that we build our websites on, whether it's Joomla, Drupal, TeamSite, Sitecore, or WordPress, ideally will be implementing for us is that mechanism where it's self-service. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not 
disagreeing with Leo that there will be some manual support required because people have questions and those questions need answers. Uh, ideally, the tools that we use to build our websites will be the same tools our customers will use to maintain their own data. Well, so like, uh, and, and that would be fine. I mean, either one of those answers is fine. If it's something that's built into a platform, then fine. I mean, I'm not, I certainly if, you know, I use, I do use WordPress for MacMost. And if there was a new feature of WordPress that allowed that, um, you know, forgetting, putting aside for a minute that I don't actually have user accounts at, at MacMost. But if I did, I would have no problem with making sure that was turned on. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I get the feeling that if I actually took time to, imp- to implement the broadest definition of GDPR for my website, um, it would get r- rarely get used. And I'd rather just, if somebody wanted to email me, uh, c- completely comply with, uh, I would do that anyway. They don't need GDPR. If somebody went and said, please remove my name from your email list, which they can do now already very easily, uh, I do it immediately. I, no, no law required. Just common so courtesy. You're already GDPR compliant. Yeah. The, 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 that's, I, what I think, that's what I'm going with. <laughs> which I think may very well be a very pragmatic um, uh, position to take until um, the courts or experience or whatever um, shows us that maybe we need to do more. Hopefully you and I and whomever else won't be the test case. Uh, can you mention the Facebook tools and the, the Google tools for downloading your data? That brings up, though, a very interesting um, uh, piece of additional information in that when you download your data from Facebook, you're not downloading everything Facebook knows about you. And yet, my understanding is that GDPR would have them have to do that. No, that's a good point. That's a good point, because what you're downloading is a copy of basically everything you have put into Facebook. But what does Facebook know about you that they have somehow aggregated? Right. That's a good question. I haven't really uh, thought too much about that. Uh, Facebook... Hmm? Go ahead. Uh, if you go to facebook.com slash business slash GDPR, they have a very long page that I am just now looking at for the first time. And uh, I'm not sure exactly everything that they will be doing to be GDPR compliant, but Mark Zuckerberg and the European Union have been in the news a lot lately, and they don't seem very happy with them. So I would hope that they are going to make an effort to be compliant with the GDPR. At a, at a perhaps a more pragmatic level, um, we... Um, most of us in here use the same email mailing list provider. And when we think about mailing lists and what information we have on people, when people sign up for our list, we obviously collect their email address and often their name, maybe some additional information explicitly, like where did you hear about us? But in reality, there's a bunch more information being collected as well, like the IP address of the per- of the, the person who signed up or um, the, you know, the date and the time they signed up and a bunch of other things related to that, uh, right down to, um, you know, this specific newsletter got sent to this specific person at this specific time and it bounced for this specific reason. Those kinds of, you know, that kind of, that kind of data is constantly being collected across all email, across all newsletters, across all newsletter providers. And again, I have to wonder, is the expectation that that level, that fine level of detail, something that um, these providers or 
we as people who use these providers are on the hook to have to provide. I realize you, probably, you don't have an answer for it. I'm just pointing down that it, pointing out that if you go down this path, it becomes a very, very nitty gritty detailed uh, with all of these little nuances that I don't ever really want to have to think about. I just don't. And there are some companies that don't want to think about it. I'm sure you've heard of Clout, the social ranking service. They are shutting down, coincidentally, on May 25th. So I it's didn't, I didn't even put the two and two together there that that was perhaps perhaps related. They probably don't want us to know what they know about us. Hmm. So I have another I have another interesting uh, thing that came up with GDPR that we've, we've mentioned, but apparently one of the things you need to do to comply is if you keep user information, it has to be encrypted, which makes sense. If you have a you know, big website and you have users, that their email addresses, passwords, all that should be encrypted on the server, should be done anyway, regardless of GDPR, and probably is in most cases. But I had a request from somebody on MacPost um, who runs a club may have been a like a Mac user club or something completely unrelated to Apple, um, just a local club and would email everybody when, you know, meetings and things were. So I had this small list of email addresses on their computer and they're in the EU. So they were very much, you know, wanting to comply with GDPR and they wanted to make sure that uh, they were complying with the rule that if they had this list on their computer, that it was encrypted. So there are various ways to do that. You can create documents that are encrypted and everything like that. And I give them some advice on that. But it was interesting to think that even if you just have your your little like a, a book club, you know, twelve people, and you have you know a uh, a little document on your computer that has the twelve email addresses, so you can copy and paste and send an email to everybody. Uh, that apparently this affects you if you're in the EU at least. So again, to go down this little rat hole of detail, yeah. Would whole disk encryption be enough? Yeah, that's one of the things I said is, well, first of all, if you're using FileVault on your Mac, then it's all encrypted, so you're good. But if you want to go that extra step... Uh, you know, are, but, but the question is, are you good? I mean, that, that's the part that we don't well, know. Well, you're is. good as it, it, is, it is encrypted. If you, you would were to ask an expert like myself, is that data encrypted? Yes, it's encrypted. You need your password to get access to it. It's And it's actually an encrypted, you know, an encrypted format on the drive. Right. Um, so I would imagine, yes, that, that it would be, but, you know, well, I haven't example, read the law. So if, I, we, if we take a look at WordPress, um, which is a great example, because a number of us now do have user accounts in our WordPress installations. If we're, if we have any kind of membership or um, commerce operation that has at a minimum email addresses. Now I know that they're not encrypted in the database, and I know, well, I shouldn't say I know, but I, I surmise that we're not running on an encrypted file system on our servers. So, you know, where does that encryption happen and, mm. and what's the right solution there? That one I don't know, but that's a much more far-reaching one because that really does impact potentially millions of various sites, not just WordPress-related, anybody that has a, a user account. This is not a tech that I'm enthusiastic about. <laughs> <laughs> See, I am enthusiastic about it, even though I'm a publisher and it's a pain in the butt to implement. And all these concerns and questions that we've heard are valid and there are not many answers 
because the GDPR hasn't even been implemented yet and we don't have real world examples to work off, I'm still nonetheless approaching it as a consumer, as someone whose data has been stolen by Equifax or Facebook or Cambridge Analytica. And I want to control my data. So even though I am responsible for other people's data and that's the part that's the pain, the part where my data is out there and I want it back, that's the part of the GDPR I love. I would feel a lot better about this if indeed it did fix Equifax. That may have been a red herring in the list of no, examples. It's, but it's a great there, example. But. I mean, that, that's that people are very justifiably, um, should be justifiably concerned about, about what a lot of companies are doing with this. And I agree with you on the surface, a lot of the, the positioning of what GDPR um, is intended to do is to protect the consumer. That's great. I kind of wish we had that. But instead, we seem to be in a position of having to abide by it without actually getting any of the benefits. Well, I think that having your customers have faith in your ability to retain their data is not a bad thing. I think that's a benefit. They have that today. (laughs) (laughs) With you, they do, Leo, with you. Exactly. And that's, but that's the, that's the very point, right? I mean, I'm not Equifax and I don't, I mean, even if I were breached, it's not like there'd be a lot of stuff to be lost, but I'm, you know, it's, it's, not likely to ever happen, knock on wood. But the point is that there are hundreds of thousands of people in my position, in our position, um, that are asking these same questions and looking at these same stories um, without necessarily having um, a clear benefit, even their customers, their clients, their customers having um, that same level of, of benefit available. But yeah, I guess I'm kind of sorted with Kevin on this one. I'm losing my tech enthusiasm about this whole GDPR thing. Not that I had that much to be <laughs> Well, thank you for letting me talk about it for half an hour, nonetheless. Hey, thank you for bringing it here. Um, it's one of those things that I know before we started, several of us expressed the uh, the desire to at least know more about it because we know it is one of those things that's, I'll just say, kind of looming over our uh, our collective heads. Okay, and remind me one more time what it stands for? The General Data Protection Regulation. Okay. goes into effect on May 25th. Excellent. Well, I'll be shutting down my sites on May 24th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I did see there is a service that you mentioned, the IP blocking. Um, there are now uh, several services that you can subscribe to that will um, basically attempt to block people coming from EU IPs. But um, as you pointed out, um, that solves, you know, a, a part of the problem, but it certainly doesn't solve all of it because there's so many different ways that EU customers are still coming in um, you know, from non-EU IP addresses. And you know, in response to Kevin's question, I just did some more research. I may have been mistaken for the last 40 minutes. GDPR actually stands for Grateful Dead Public Radio. Oh, oh yeah. well, now I'm more enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't care even less, actually. <laughs> Uh, if only we had outro music, we could actually use, you know, well, never mind. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I do actually have one more quick topic, and that is uh, New York Times is talking about key fobs for cars. So you don't have to have a physical key that you turn in the ignition. You just have to have the, the key fob in your pocket. 
And people are forgetting that their cars are running. And this is especially true of, I had a friend with a Prius and she came back to it after she was parked for a couple of hours and realized the car was still running. So what the problem is, is that people put the car in their garage and they go in the house and the car actually keeps on running and poisons them. And New York Times has found 28 people have been killed by this and a whole bunch more uh, sickened by it. So it's just an interesting consequence of new technology and something to think about. And I just thought that was kind of uh, interesting. Yeah, I saw this uh, story too, and it's really interesting. And I was, um, I, of course, obviously, if it's a, an electric car, then it's not an issue because it's not producing the uh, carbon monoxide. But actually, it still is an issue. I'll get to that in a minute. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's probably definitely an issue to have the car running, but it's probably not the same. I don't know. Um, I think uh, I think I was trying to think of what the workaround is, and I think the proper workaround uh, is not very practical. It's that garages, any place you park a car, should actually have a carbon monoxide detector. Um, but easily, much more easily said than done. Uh, but uh, an easier thing to do for car manufacturers would be to actually put some sort of sensor on the outside of the car or, you know, somehow maybe it's only even used, you know, if the car has been idling uh, in park um, for a certain period of time um, to kind of uh, give an indication that it, you know, is, you know, should it be turned off or, you know, an alarm goes off or something like that. Um, What Ford is doing is if the car is sitting uh, idling and the fob is not inside the car, yeah. the car will shut down after 30 minutes. Yeah. Well, 30 minutes to me even seems pretty extreme. I mean, if the at least they've not, got that. Yeah. If the fob's not in the car, then. But, but how many people leave their fob in the you know, center console too? That's, you know, well, that's a probably a really bad idea. Um, I mean, just, uh, I guess if you live somewhere where car, car theft is not an issue. Well, I mean, if you're in your, in your garage or whatever and, I guess I, I leave my. I do that all the time, actually. So, Lottie, so I, I want to hear what Leo says. Uh, thinks about the electric cars. That was an interesting aside. Yeah. So it's it's not the electric cars themselves. Um, it's for people that have an electric car and um, an ICE, an internal combustion engine car. the The scenario works like this: um, with uh, many electric cars, uh, Tesla in particular, uh, you basically turn it off and get out. Uh, you push a button and get out. Uh, the scenario being you put the car in park and you get out of the car. That's all you do. You get that into the habit of that. If you do that with an internal combustion engine, be it um, a hybrid or a push button or a key fob or even a keyed car, you put it in park and you get out. What have you skipped? You've skipped turning off the car. And um, I know of people who have done this, who have come back to their car with the key still in it, idling, because they got into the habit of put it in park and get out of the car. So it's not a threat. You know, it's not an issue with the electric cars itself. It's how the electric car's usability is training us to, uh, to behave a slightly different way than the rest of the cars, the other cars kind of sort of expect you. I wonder, back to... You know, I mentioned the carbon monoxide detector. If you if you have one in your house, whether or not that's enough protection, and and if these these uh, deaths and the people that were sickened 
you know, what the status of the carbon monoxide detector in the house was. Um, because you know, if you have an attached garage, I don't think I've ever lived in a house with an attached garage, but if you have an attached garage and it is ventilating into the house for some reason, um, then if you have carbon monoxide detectors properly installed up to codes for most of the United States, uh, would they then go off before you were in danger from the, from the carbon monoxide coming from the garage? I certainly, I don't think a carbon monoxide detector is required by code everywhere. I know that it's yeah, not. I don't think so. Uh, it's not really? here. Um, so in fact, even a, a smoke detector, I don't think is necessarily required by code. Um, so I don't think that um, um, that would necessarily apply. I don't know. It'd be, it would be interesting to understand exactly what the scenarios for those deaths and illnesses was. Well, because if, you, if you're just thinking in terms of prevention for yourself, um, I'd like to know if like, you know, so I do have carbon monoxide detectors, you know, outside, you know, the, in the proper spaces outside of bedrooms, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't have an attached garage, but let's say I did. Um, I, I think you'd be safe if you had a it, it would, carbon it would, monoxide detector yeah. that had a battery and all that. Yeah. And I even have one in places that I know is not required just because of worry from very equipment in the house and things like sure. that. So, yeah. I, I personally, I like the idea that some variation of the idea that, that Randy mentioned that Ford was doing where, you know, if, if the key fob's not in the car after 30 minutes of idling, it'll shut itself off. There's got to be some kind of an algorithm, some kind of an automatic something or other sure. that the car can make an intelligent decision about whether or not it should continue to run. The problem with that is it takes at least 20 years. Even if they start putting it every new car now, there's still people buying old cars, used cars, keeping their cars around, yep. Uh, yep. that kind of thing. So, um, I mean, even a family that's got three or four cars in a large family, right. the, the oldest one is still going to lag behind. Yep. And it's going to take a while for that feature to get in. But right now, you can, get, you can go out and get a carbon monoxide detector, and it will not only solve, hopefully solve this problem, but solve the regular problem of carbon monoxide, which kills probably, I would imagine, way more than 28 people uh, in the United States alone every year. We still yeah. have the problem uh, whenever there's a, uh, a power outage out here, we end up with at least a couple of deaths for people that have been running a, just a generator in the wrong place. They'll either have it in the garage or, of all things, they'll bring it inside. And uh, that's just, you know, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, no. <laughs> Okay, I think that's a good place to wrap up. On that, on that happy note. note. Yes. <laughs> Enthusiastic note. Well, it's technology, baby. Talk, technology, great. We should all just live outside in tents without cars. <laughs> no, no, no. Just, no you be, just wish you were camping. That's what you're... I do. There'll <laughs> <laughs> be plenty to come this summer. Plenty of camping this summer. Yeah. All right. Well, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh24. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.